For the last seven weeks, we've been kind of working through what uh, culture calls the seven deadly sins. It's not in the Bible. There's no passage that says the seven deadliest sins are blank. It doesn't exist. Uh, but culturally, this started about the year 400 that they were identified, this group of seven sins that are kind of the common sins of man. And the things that we all struggle with, we all stumble through. And so how do we navigate through that, uh, the potholes, if you will, on the path of life? And so first, before we even uh, dive into today's topic, I want to say thank you. There's uh, a whole variability of great teachers that have come through in the last six weeks. And so I want to say thanks to them for standing in and delivering wisdom and perspective. Every summer, if you haven't noticed, this is uh, year four for us actually now. Every summer, we have this kind of extended break where you hear multiple voices, and there's a purpose to that. Not only is it important for us to remember as a, as a body that uh, wisdom is not contained in one central person or one special speaker, that wisdom is through the Holy Spirit in each of us. And so when you hear multiple voices, that should uh, help you hear that. The second thing that's true is that by the end of that six-week run, I, some people send me messages or I get emails, hey, or, did you resign? Like, what happened? They're like, is this a sabbatical? What is, what's going on? Because uh, you haven't preached in a while. And uh, the beauty of that is I hope that that's a reminder to you that we lead together as elders at this church, that we have a plurality of leadership, that this is not uh, Pastor Kyle's church or Pastor Kyle's stage or Pastor Kyle's pulpit or any of that. Uh, my goal is that that six weeks reminds all of us, uh, myself included, that the beauty and the wisdom in this body is in the body. And it isn't up to the one hour here. It should actually make this hour a little less important. And we go, you know what? Maybe it isn't about that hour. Because we say that this is a church of the 167, meaning there's 168 hours in the week and there's only one of them that happens here. And so what we do here is we gather and we commune together and we get together and we love each other and we inspire each other to go out and actually do the work of church, which is not in this building. And so uh, hopefully all that stuff is clear. I say it so that it is explicit and not just implied. And with that said, uh, I will tell you that we are going to uh, dive in. Today we're talking about gluttony. Everybody's, uh, everybody just kind of winces at gluttony, just the same way they wince at lust. They go, oh, because we all, whether we'd like to admit it or not, we all have uh, some certain areas that we feel a little gluttonous, a few areas where we overindulge, a few things where we may overconsume. And so we're going to lean into God's best on the path of life with gluttony. We're going to do so by starting in the scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he writes this, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Okay, so we're closing this series on gluttony, and it's sort of a delicate thing, because here's the deal. It's easy to beat ourselves up over the stuff. It's easy to beat ourselves up over the extra bowl of ice cream or the fourth glass of wine or whatever it is that you would say is your struggle. And we would acknowledge pretty quickly and pretty easily, no one's really going to argue, that the issue is overconsumption there. And so the challenge with something like gluttony is to go, how is the sermon not over right now? Because that's it. Stop doing that. Like, stop being gluttonous. That's it. That's the whole strategy. And so what I think we're going to do is, A, we're going to look at it a little differently, and I'm going to spin a little plot twist and see if it helps us understand a modern gluttony that we're mostly unaware of that's a blind spot for each of us. But before I even get to that, I want to tell you my own story of gluttony because we're in this together, okay? We're in this together. Most of you know I'm from Texas originally. I have my card from Ohio that says I'm a, a citizen of Ohio. I'm a full-fledged Ohioan. Uh, but there are a few vestigial bits of Texas that stay with me, one of which is brisket. I, I long for brisket at times. T brisket is the great meat of Texas. It's what Texans are known for, if anything. 
And, and if it's not brisket that they're known for, now you know that that's what Texans should be known for. Anyway, brisket is an incredible thing. It's an incredible delicacy if done right, but it takes this incredible amount of time to do it right. So, not so long ago, maybe about a year ago, I said, you know what? I can't keep saying I miss brisket. I'm just going to start making my own. And brisket, if you know, it's like a piece of meat that's about as big as your mattress, and you buy it from Kroger, and it's 600 pounds, and you get put it on the smoker. But to do it right, you have to actually give it 24 hours under the perfect spice blend. So let's say you want to do a brisket, and you were originally from Texas. This is really about you, isn't it? And, and you would have bought a spice blend from Texas. You would have imported your own spice blend because you can't use anything off the shelf here. And you would have then gently drizzled and massaged that into your meat, and you would have had a, a dry rub that you would have let sit for 24 hours because you're conscientious like that, and you don't want to rush a good thing. And then, on the day of the brisket, you would have woken up at 4 a.m. because meat is worth it. And then you take your brisket and you put it on the smoker and you have the, the certain bits of wood just right and it's a little bit of pecan and a little bit of apple, but you don't want it too much of one or the other because that could throw the flavor off ever so slightly. And so at 4 a.m. it goes and you have to get just the right temperature. Too hot, you'll dry it out. Too low, it'll never cook. So 217.3 degrees is where you have it. And then your job from 4 a.m. until it's time to serve it is to keep it as close to 200 degrees inside of that smoker as possible because if you go too high, it dries out, and if you go too low, you never actually serve it to anyone. Time starts to pass, and you keep checking on it. You're keeping the temperature just right. You're adding this. You're closing the flue. A little less air, a little more fuel, whatever it takes. I'm going to get it right. You're very excited about your brisket. While you are doing the brisket, you decide, you decide that you can't have a great brisket without a great southern potato salad. And so then you go to the store and you get all the things you need for a great potato salad. And you begin to make a great potato salad, but you realize that with, with a meat the size of a mattress, you must have much potato salad. And so you make a bathtub full of potato salad, and it is beautiful. And you make it, and you're proud of it, and you're smelling it, and you can't wait to taste it. And it sits in the fridge, and then you go back out to check on your brisket. And here's the thing. Anybody who cooks meat knows that beef needs to get to 145 degrees to be... Uh, disease-free, right? Not brisket. Brisket needs to be 192 degrees because there's collagen in the meat, and if the collagen isn't at 192 degrees, it doesn't break down, and that's why your meat is tough. It's counterintuitive. You go, wait, if you get it too hot, won't it be tough? Wrong. You have to get it hot. But I got this the little secret. You can Google this. It's real. It's called the Texas Crutch. People in Texas know to do this. It's the Texas Crutch with brisket, and at 165 degrees, it's not ready yet, you get foil, and you gently caress this loving lump, and you surrounded in foil and you give it exactly two layers of foil not more not less you put the thermometer probe back in and you close the brisket back into the smoker are you excited yet are you ready for your brisket anybody's mouth watering it shouldn't be because it's not done the texas crutch demands that at 192.631 degrees you pull the brisket off of the smoker then you wrap it in two not one but two beach towels and then you put it into an empty ice chest and close it with a whisper Now your brisket sits and the juices reapportion themselves throughout this incredible fibrous, beautiful meat. And then you just wait and it sits and it sits and it sits. And when your guests show up, you open this magical ice chest and you pull out these towels. And they're like, why is he serving us beach towels? And you take off the beach towels and you hang them out on a chair on the patio and you forget about it. And you take them to the pool the next day and your wife's mad at you because she's rubbing brisket all over herself. But that's a different story. And then you unwrap the foil and you put it on the cutting board and you take your first slice through this glorious 
creation of the good Lord and you see the perfect pink smoke ring around the edges and the juices pour out and the people ooh and ah and it just falls apart and they say put that sauce away you don't even need it you start to serve your guests potato salad and brisket you serve them much of all of this and you look down after everyone served and you still have half of a brisket left and it's never going to be better than it is right now so you start to take some brisket and eat it then you eat some more brisket and you have some more potato salad and i could get a bigger spoon i could eat it faster if i could just find a bigger spoon and you end up eating more brisket and more potato salad than anyone ever thought possible you do the dishes you send people home there is no brisket left over my friends and then you lay down in your bed and you writhe and you toss and you turn your wife says are you sick did you poison us is there food poisoning we're all going to die what did you do and i say honey it's not sickness it's sin i overate and at 3 a.m you get up and as if to prove it you unexpectedly but inevitably give back everything you took in that day sad ending to a story isn't it you were hungry just up until a minute ago you see the problem with gluttony for us in the overconsumptive phase is it has immediate consequences I abused my body I wasted food and I brought pain upon myself it wasn't fun it actually stole the joy of the thing I was intended to find joy in in the first place and so gluttony is simply that it's plain so there is no argument stop that don't do that there's a great uh, Bob Newhart sketch where he's playing a therapist and the woman comes in with an issue. She says, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a box. And so he kind of lets her talk about that for about 20 seconds. And he goes, I have some advice. This is the words of life. This will get you through. Don't worry. Get out your pen. Write this down. And she goes, I'm ready. And he goes, stop it. Stop being afraid of that. And she's like, that's not, that's not good advice. See, it really started in my childhood. He goes, no, 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 no childhood. None of that. Stop it. And that's all the advice he ever gives her. And over and over, he just yells, stop it at her. And A, I really admire his counseling philosophy, but B, when we talk of the gluttony of overconsumption, it's that easy. Just don't eat more brisket, fool. Like, that wasn't hard. The issue for the rest of us, the issue for all of us that deal with this on a larger level, is that there's a root of sin in this gluttony. That our hearts are rooted in what I will call disordered desires. Our hearts are rooted in disordered desires. So, with brisket for me, my desire for more of this goodness overwhelmed my, my good sense. It overwhelmed the things that had right priority in my life, and I just sort of put blinders on and just ate until I was sick. Gluttony is ultimately about putting my desires above all else and trusting no one beyond myself. When we eat like it's the last meal on earth, what we're doing is we actually fail to trust in a God who is good and will provide. It's this subtle thing. When I overeat, it's me telling God, I don't think you're going to have enough for me tomorrow, so I better stock up today. It's a failure for us to recognize God's abundance, that there is always enough in some way, shape, or form. And so instead, we live in a world of scarcity. So gluttony is overconsumption. It is that. But here's the plot twist. All sins are about this disordered desire. Envy, all the ones we've talked about. Envy is disordered desire for what others have. Wrath is a disordered desire for justice or vengeance. Sloth is a disordered desire for comfort. Greed is a disordered desire for wealth. Lust is a disordered desire for pleasure. And gluttony, a disordered desire for fullness. None of the things on that list are wrong. None of those things on that list are bad. None of those things are sinful in and of themselves. But when they become the chief goal of our life, when they become the top thing that we aim for, that's when they become a problem. And so gluttony is overconsumption, but it is the disordered desire 
for fullness. And modern gluttony chases the fullness of self and self-importance in a really unique way. A really unique way. It's funny that it's a, a modern issue that we're attacking, and it's, it's beyond the gluttony of overconsumption that we're sitting with, because the idea for this actually came from 1942. 1942 was the year that uh, C.S. Lewis published The Screwtape Letters. And how interesting that C.S. Lewis, in 1942, had the very prescription of what it is we would be walking through in 2019, of our perfect society that we love and we've created. It actually is the thing that is offering one avenue after another into greater gluttony. But it's, it's non-traditional in the way you think of it. And so C.S. Lewis writes this book, The Screwtape Letters, as a correspondence between demons as they fight for the hearts and souls of, of men and women. And so the, the demons are writing letters to each other, discussing the best ways to ensnare and entrap, the best ways to tempt and tease people into greater sin, away from God. And what C.S. Lewis writes with these demons as they uh, correspond with each other, what they say is it isn't about a gluttony of excess anymore. Now that's too obvious. People are too aware of that. There's a social pressure not to do that, except in my case with brisket. It's as if he could see that we would live in a culture of quinoa and flax seeds. A culture of, I yesterday, no joke, ate a lentil and cucumber salad. It wasn't very good, so I chased it with two hot dogs. <laughs> but he knew that there was this gluttony of overconsumption, but that was just a little too easy. And so what's the more sinister way to get to us? What's the more sinister way to get into the heart of man? And Lewis called it the gluttony of delicacy. And so these, uh, I'm going to read you a passage in this the demons are, are corresponding with each other. It's a letter written, and they're speaking of a woman that they had targeted. They're trying to, to kind of steal her heart back from God. And he writes this. He said, she would be astonished to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce complaining and impatience and uncharitableness and self-concern? She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeny and weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never actually recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes she is practicing temperance, the opposite of gluttony. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream <gasps> at the plate which the overworked waitress brings and sets before her. She goes, oh no, that is far too much. Take it away and bring me a quarter of it. And if challenged, she would actually say she was doing this to avoid waste. But in reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is to be offended by the sight of more than what she happens to want in the moment. What C.S. Lewis had in 1942 is what we have today, which is the gluttony of delicacy, the gluttony of the very special dietary culinary beauty that we think we own. The danger of modern life is in the cultivation of self-concern that is offered at every turn, and food and drink offers the most common and the most frequent gateways to worship self. We live in a world with unfathomable number of choices. Who here has a specific brand of water that you prefer? Pacific, no one wants to admit to that. <laughs> Put it on the screen. We have a slide that has, uh, that's, that's the aisle there. Those are all the same bottle. But if you want it, there's all the different bottles. 
People have their favorite water. I know this because I know you when you tell me these things. That certain bottles are preferred over others, that the square bottle or the charcoal-infused one or the triple filter or the reverse osmosis or have the spring-fed or the glacier-fed or the Fijian water, whatever you want, it's all up there. And it's amazing and it's all different and it tastes different, I've been told. I don't believe it, but I've been told that whether you like the watershed water and you will sit outside in negative temperatures so as to fill your gallon jug so only drink the watershed water because that's the best water or if you prefer Ice Mountain, or if you prefer Fiji, or whatever you prefer. People tell me they can tell the difference, and that's the only one I'll drink. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a bit of a skeptic, and so I've set up multiple, not just one, but multiple blind water taste tests for people who tell me they can tell the difference. To my great disappointment, everybody who's ever told me they can tell the difference has actually picked their water out of the blind taste test lineup, (laughs) which means apparently you can tell the difference between the waters. But I digress. Next time I do it, I will put all of the same water, and then we'll see what they do. (laughs) People have water preferences. There is an entire aisle. People have preferred brands. This is not a sin, okay? If you prefer Coke over Pepsi or Pepsi over Coke or Corbin, Dr. Pepper over all of them, yes, Corbin. That is not a sin. That's a preference. And there is no sin in preference. But preference exposes an opportunity. Preference becomes an invitation to something else. When little preferences become priorities in our lives, we start to build alternate identities. This brand, that version. I'm vegan. I only eat things that grow. I'm paleo. I picked up a rabbit that someone had run over on the way to church, and I'm storing it for later. I'm only organic. I only eat genetically modified foods. I love the genetically modified foods. I'm only GMO. I'm no-carb, I'm pro-carb, I'm gluten-free, or I just fill my face with gluten all day. We are offered chances to build our lives on our culinary uniqueness. This has nothing to do if you have an allergy and you don't eat a certain shellfish or whatever, then this has nothing to do with you. Eat what you're supposed to eat, eat the way God designed you to eat, and so don't walk away and be like, I think he made fun of me because I'm only GMO-free or what. Nobody, it's okay, it's preference. And if you need it, go get it. But if I hand somebody a 12-year scotch and they smell it and they go, I don't know, I only do 18-year scotches, then maybe we've crossed a line. If you're one of these people that can only have an 18-year scotch, by all means, I'd like to compare that with you this afternoon. Bring it by. I'll help you through your problems. Someone brings over the casserole and it has cut green beans instead of French-style green beans. And we all know that when buying canned green beans, you must buy the French style because they must be fancier because France and not the cut ones because those are like the ends and nobody wants those. And so how could you bring the casserole with the cut green beans? These are preferences. Preferences are not sinful, but pride is. When we find ourselves growing in self-concern or even slightly building some identity on the preferences we keep, that's where the trap is. The trap is when we no longer have a preference, but we see a sense of self in these things. When I moved to South Africa in 2004, the world taught me just how snooty I had become about food. And mind you, I had not been out of college very long, and so my idea of uh, high-minded preferences were this wing joint over this wing joint, or uh, this discount brand of soda over this discount brand of soda. That was about as sophisticated as I got, and yet even that, I recognized, 
with a little bit of pride mixed in. I moved to South Africa and I learned how to eat anything. See, my, my goal was to live as the people who were there. And so I wanted to live like the poorest people in the church I served, which means I didn't live like I live here. That for one year, I lived on four or $5,000 total, and I paid a remarkable amount of rent for living in a drafty, rat-infested house. And so at the end of the month, there was not much money for food, and so we kind of ate whenever food showed up, which turned out to be exactly the way that my friends in Africa lived. Some days you eat, some days you don't. When food shows up, you eat a lot. When food shows up, you eat. And what it taught me was how to eat anything and to be ready to receive anything. What it taught me is that pulling up to the back of the grocery store once a week to receive their expired food because we knew the time and the day that they would set all of their expired food by the dumpster behind the grocery store. We knew. And so we would be ready. We would take a van up there and we would receive all of their expired food by the dumpster like rats waiting for the trash. And we would begin to take their trash. We would begin to take the expired food and we'd load it into this car. We'd take it back to the church and we'd parcel it out so that everybody got something. And the real jewel... The real lucky person got the expired African grocery store sushi. That was if you got lucky. It tore down the too-good-for heart of every marketing message I'd ever heard. Every message that whispers, build your life on your preferences. Show people you're unique by what you consume. Show them you're different by what you drive. Show them that you're great because you eat certain things. Show them how special you are. And this tore all of that down. You know that choosy moms choose Jeff. Choosy moms choose Jeff. This was the marketing message of the 1980s. What is that message? It's every message, but if you listen to that message, what does it say? If you're a good mom... There's Jip in your pantry. If you're a less than good mom, if you're a bad mom, and it, what choosy moms choose Jip was an invitation to invite someone to put their identity in their product. Put your identity in the type of peanut butter you buy. It's ridiculous when you think about it, but when you're watching the advertisement and you see how nice that mom looks and her kids seem so happy and it spreads so thinly, and unlike the organic peanut butters, you don't even have to stir it every time you open it. Why are we doing that? <laughs> choosy moms choose Jip. And hungry, almost homeless missionaries trim the mold off of a California roll and they pray with every bite. And they learn that it's okay to love great things and it's also a good thing to accept humble things. I joke about vanilla bean being the best, best vanilla ice cream. It is true. <laughs> but I will eat any vanilla ice cream you have. I actually don't care. It doesn't matter. You can appreciate great things without being too proud for humble things. And that's where gluttony gets us. It gets us to a place where we can no longer accept humble things because we're too good for them. Pride has convinced us that we're too good for that. It's okay to like great things. It's okay to like the better version. It's okay to like the nicer. It's okay, and if God has blessed you and you can afford it, it's okay to only buy that stuff. But when presented with something less, the question is, would your heart say too good for? Or would your heart say, thank you, Lord? Culture says that you can show you're important by rejecting common things. The way you are uncommon is by rejecting common things. If you come to my house for a steak, I will serve you a ribeye. It is expensive. We wait for them to be on sale. We buy them. We freeze them. We hope that they go on sale again later. Why will I serve you that? Because I think it's the best. And so if I ever invite you over for steak, you will get that. It's great. 
I don't think there's a better steak. The next day, after I feed you a steak, I will be at McDonald's eating a Big Mac because it is also good. And I'm not too good for it. Two all-beef patties, lettuce, special sauce, pickles, onions, sesame seed pods. The issue is that if we don't mind great things but we're too good for the lesser things, and both things can be okay in the moment. Big Mac is pretty good unless pride whispers that you're just too good for it. It's not good for you. You probably shouldn't have one every day, but here's the deal. Pride is nothing more than an inflated sense of self-importance. Pride is nothing more than an inflated sense of self-importance. I am too good for blank. Paul says, stomach for the food and the food for stomach, which translate basically to this, eat and enjoy great food and drink. Find pleasure in the created world and have no guilt when you enjoy great things. He then says, God will do away with both of them, the stomach and the food. So then Paul's next piece of the message is, remember, food is ultimately eliminated and our bodies are ultimately dust. And so if you build your life on these things you consume, it's not really going to satisfy because it isn't going to last. It all passes. It's all temporary. If we want to be graphic, we can read from Paul's letter to the Philippians. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And the word, as we've heard before, for garbage is a four-letter word for excrement if we translated it accurately. It's not a pretty term. Street slang for excrement. Paul says, you build your identity on what you consume, then guess what? In eight hours, that identity is in your large intestine waiting to be passed. If you build your life on excrement, that is what you get and your identity is based on something temporary, and so what will happen is you will end up chasing the next temporary fix because the digestion cycle demands it. The only way to maintain status is to continue to climb the ladder of consumption. Temporary glory, temporary hope is only as important as your next drink or your next meal or your next house or your next spouse. And that is where gluttony leads us. It's the gluttony of delicacy that says, I can build my identity on my consumables. It fuels pride and steals gratitude, which is maybe the best diagnostic we have. You go, I don't know if this is something I struggle with. The question is, are you grateful or are you left longing? When we're rightly aligned, our desires are rightly ordered. We see food as a gift, drink as a blessing. We see fine things as, as a great joy, but not something we would build our life on. Gratitude says, thank you, whether it's the 30-year scotch or the grocery store sushi, gratitude says, thank you. Gluttony says, give me more or give me better or I don't think so. And that's not the message of gluttony we've been taught, that as long as you're willing to not eat too much, that you must not have this gluttony issue. And what C.S. Lewis tells us, what we know to be true, what we see in the scripture, is that it really isn't about how much or how little, it's about how we use it to build our identities. What's clear is the body is a temple and it is to be cared for. Scripture says it over and over, so take care of it. So the message is this, be discerning when you can. There's nothing wrong with eating well. There's nothing wrong with being healthy. So don't walk out of here going, I think the message was we have to eat Big Macs and drink Coke. I think that's the only thing we're supposed to do because otherwise we're prideful and jerks. No. Have a salad, eat what you want, be gluten-free. It's all good. Fuel your body with good things because God would desire that you would live this life in a healthy way that you might reach as many as possible, that you might be a witness for as many days as he might have numbered for you. So take care of the body he's given you. Yes, put good fuel in. The trouble is when we switch from worshiping God in the temple to worshiping the temple itself. 
food offers unlimited paths to worship ourselves. So how do we get this right? How do we avoid this trap? Paul, later in his same letter to the Corinthians, I believe has the antidote. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This, I believe, is the antidote to gluttony of both excess and of delicacy. Notice that Paul doesn't give us a list of prohibitions. Eat this, not that. He doesn't give us measurements. You can have this, but only in this much or only in this little. You, you have to be careful. Paul doesn't give us a restrictive list of legalistic guidelines that if we follow it just right, then we'll be holy. Paul sets out two principles that counteract this idea that we can live and worship ourselves. First is seek the good of others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Seek the good of others. The second thing he says is live for God's glory. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Seek the good of others and live for God's glory. This is the antidote to modern gluttony. It's scientifically proven you cannot do two things at once. You can't serve others and yourself. You can't worship God and yourself. There's a choice to be made. There's a switch to be flipped. And so the antidote to the poison of pride and gluttony in our lives is a life lived in service of others for God's fame. A life lived in service of others for God's fame. Ultimately, we see this laid out in Jesus most clearly. Over and over, when Jesus was asked what he was here for, he was here, he was here for the glory of the Father. He was here to make God the Father famous. He was here to extend the glory of his Father in heaven. For the fame of the Father, Jesus served up the ultimate meal. He sat before his disciples at the Last Supper. He says, I'm going to give my body for you. That the bread that we break represents the way I will be broken for you. That the ultimate bread, the bread of life, the only one that sustains is me. And if you base your life on any lesser thing, any lesser consumable than me, if anything else you put inside of you is where you find your identity or your meaning or your hope, just goes through but if you find your hope in me it will last forever and it will always satisfy will always fulfill you will not be left wanting on the bread of life and so he takes the bread and he breaks it and he takes the cup and he says this is the cup of the new covenant he's making a covenant with us that says i will give my life for you as the ultimate offering the ultimate meal the ultimate sacrifice and when i do that you eat of me and drink of me that you have me inside of you and you'll be good whether you have much or little whether you have something great or humble, with Christ you have enough. He says, this is the place where you have to find yourself. This is the place where you have to center your identity. Jesus takes his life. He takes it to the cross for you and for me, for our peace, for our hope, for our benefit, so that we will never be spiritually hungry again. So where gluttony asks, what more can I get? The path of life, as we see in Jesus, asks, what more can I give? We were created to share in the goodness of God's creation, to enjoy the incredible life that he offers. We were created to be a blessing as we are blessed. We were created for gratitude and not gluttony. We were created to eat and to drink and to be merry for the hope of others, for God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made many good things. Lord, we recognize that we live in a world of abundance. 
abundant choices and abundant goodness. Lord, I pray that we as a people would keep our eyes on you, that we would fix our gaze upon you and your glory. Lord, that we would not lose out on the idea that all of this goodness, Father, you've given it to us that we might share it with others as a reflection of your goodness. Lord, when we find ourselves uh, and our identities mixed up in something consumable, Lord, I pray that we would be convicted, that our lives would be built on nothing less than you, that we would repent of the things that we've made little gods in our life, the little bits of identity that we've constructed. Show us that those things uh, will fail and fall. Show us that you are eternal and you are good. God, thank you for being for us, for sending Jesus for us. Ultimately, Lord, thank you for the salvation that we have in him and him alone for the satisfaction and the fullness and the hope that we find in him. God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue to worship.